Well, before we uh, hear from the Lord and from His Word, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God, we thank You for this evening. We thank You for the privilege that we have to gather together with fellow saints and to worship You with all of our minds, with all of our hearts, with all of our voices. Father, we ask that You would truly be honored tonight. May You please direct our hearts heavenward. May You please cut through the haze and the distractions of our week and enable our eyes to be placed upward, to fix our gaze upon you, that we might see you in all of your beauty and all of your glory, and that we might worship you as you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled our time around the Word this evening, The Journey Back to Joy. The journey back to joy. You see, being lost is a horrible feeling. How many of you have ever been in that lost feeling? Maybe it's been in a car. Maybe it's been walking somewhere. And that, ah, I have no idea where I am and how to get back. Um, Particularly before the age of GPS, that was a more frequent occurrence. Um, I had the experience of feeling that at the ripe young age of six. I was with my family in San Francisco on Pier 39, and uh, we were down, we grew, I grew up in Washington, so we're down in uh, San Francisco visiting, and um, my family's all talking, the adults are all talking about what to do next for the day. And I tug on my dad and say, hey, dad, I'm heading into the shop, which had these really cool things in the window. They had uh, like the little uh, metal balls that like clicked back and forth and they would like, go down ramps. And I go, whoa, that's so cool. So I run into the store and, and spend time just gazing and looking at all this stuff. And, and then I decided I was done and I go outside and the family's gone. And I had that panic moment of, oh, my goodness, I don't know where my family is. So I quietly turn and go back into the shop. My only thing that I do know, which is where I've been spent the last 15 minutes, and proceeded to uh, look at everything with a glazed look on my eye, not really looking at the things in the shop. Uh, Eventually, I talked to the the shop owner who announced my name over the loudspeaker system about the same time that my family realized I was gone. uh, And they said, hey, where's Mike? And all of a sudden, the parents of Mike and Lug, please come to... (laughs) So uh, we got uh, reunited, Um, but it's a horrible feeling of being lost and not knowing your way out, not knowing how to get back to where you were or where you need to be. And many times when it comes to joy, we can have that lost feeling as well. We have felt joyful, we know what it means to be joyful, and yet we can be in that moment where we feel anything but joyful. Our heart is sorrowful, it's sad, it's downcast, it's discouraged, and we really don't know the way back to joy. We don't know how to get back to that place of happiness. All we know is that we're not particularly happy right now. Or maybe we do know how we got there, right? We're like, 
We know half of the map, right? We know we can see the red trail behind us. This happened in our life, then this happened, this happened, and this is why I'm feeling so horrible right now. This is why I'm feeling so sad and so downcast right now. We know exactly what transpired that pushed us over the edge of that hill and caused us sliding down into the valley, the dark, dark valley that we're now in. But that's where our map stops. There's, it's blank. It hasn't, uh, in, in mobile technology, the rest of the map hasn't loaded yet. And we can merely see how far we've come, but we cannot see what's ahead, and we don't know how to get out of this valley. We can see that the sun was shining up where we used to be, but down in this valley, it's very, very dark. And it's depressing down here. Some people describe this experience differently. Some call it depression. Others just say that they're sad and they don't know why. Others say that they're discouraged, disappointed, and disheartened. These feelings are often associated with a lack of motivation, with a lack of appetite sometimes, and even a lack of desire to spend time with other people. Now, these dark, sad feelings are not foreign to any of us. They may not be our regular experience, but we've all experienced sadness to one degree or another, and if we haven't yet, we will. We will. Even the most cheerful among us has experienced disappointment. We are not immune to having our joy taken away from us. We can all find ourselves lost, far away from joy and not sure how to get back. But we're going to learn how to climb out of this dark valley and find our way back to joy by watching a psalmist, one who has written a couple psalms for us as he did it. He climbed back to joy. And so we're going to learn from his experience. If you have your Bibles with you, you can either tap there or turn there uh, to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. We're actually going to be looking at Psalms 42 and 43 tonight. Two psalms. And there's a reason that these two psalms are put together. One, there's a superscript heading at the beginning of 42 but not at the beginning of 43. But the strongest connection to see these two psalms together is that they have a similar refrain that is shared between the two psalms. Look at, the, look at uh, 42, verse 5. It says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. That same phrase, that same refrain is echoed in verse 11, and then in chapter 43, verse 5. So we see this repetition of this refrain that caps off these three sections of the psalmist's discourse. And so, uh, because of that, uh, most scholars believe that these were written together, even though they can be seen as two separate psalms, uh, there's benefit to seeing them together as well. Now, I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know if the dark valley of of sadness is where uh, you are here tonight. If so, I pray this word from the Lord is encouragement to you. If you haven't, if you're not there, I can guarantee you that sadness is part of our lot in life. And this 
those days will come. And so see this as a preparation. What do you do if you do happen to find yourself here? Bookmark these psalms in your mind and return here to receive the wisdom of the Lord on how to find your way back to joy. And thirdly, if uh, you are involved in the church and involved in helping other people grow in Christ, you will have the opportunity to help somebody find their way back to joy. And these psalms can be a tool for you as you point brothers and sisters in Christ to find their way back to joy in Christ. And so I, I pray that this, these psalms are encouragement to us. So, the three ways that the psalmist has climbed his way back out of sadness, out of a downcast soul. Let's begin by reading the first five verses of Psalm chapter 42. Psalm 42, starting in verse 1, he says, To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. It's here in verse 5 that we see this concern of the psalmist that is repeated throughout the two psalms. His soul is downcast. He will repeat this reality three more times in the course of these two chapters, but this is his concern. This is his problem. This is what is on his heart and on his mind. This is the knot that he's trying to untie. But why is his soul so forlorn? Why is it so downcast? Well, when the Bible speaks about the soul, it's referring to the inner part of us. We are a mixture of both body and soul, both material and immaterial. And so he's speaking about his soul. He's looking inwardly at his, at his heart, at the internal, immaterial part of him. His mind, his will, his affections, his emotions. He's asking himself, why am I so disappointed? Why am I so depressed? We don't know specifically who the author is. It simply states it's of the sons of Korah, a group of men who wrote a number of psalms. Uh, This author seems to be away from Jerusalem. He's asking about going back to worship at Jerusalem, worship before the Lord. He wants to go back to that place that he knew so well. And yet he's not there. It could mean that he lives in the northern part of Israel and, and and can't go back down to Jerusalem for whatever reason. Or it could mean he's exiled in a foreign land and, and for that reason cannot make it to Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, he's distant from the temple and it plays a role in his thinking and in his worship. And so the psalmist recognizes that he's sad, that he's depressed, and he's trying to climb out. And the first step that he takes is in regard to his direction. He fixes his desire 
on the Lord. And that is indeed our first step that we must take if we're going to climb out of the dark valley of depression is that we must set our direction by fixing our desire on the Lord. Notice how the psalmist starts this psalm. He starts with a metaphor of a wild deer. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I mean, just hear the, the longing and the languishing of this, this man who wants God more than anything else. That's what's top of his mind, that's the top of his priority list, is that he is thirsting after God. He's no doubt probably seen in the wild this deer in the land of Israel, which is very dry and relies upon springs in the ground and, and the, the, the early and late rains to water the land. And so the deer uh, has to know where the water sources are. And so as it's been out running through the barren landscape, and then it comes to the streams, the streams that it knows, and maybe a few that have been dried up, and now he's really thirsty and, and finally gets to one that still has water in it and is absolutely parched. It will stop at nothing to get to that water. So the psalmist says, that's how my soul is longing for you, God. I will stop at nothing until I get you. I want you above everything else. All other concerns fade away because I want you. Now, We must not read these verses as if he's in some lofty spiritual tower untouched by the concerns of life. He's not just this this guy who's sitting there who's just spiritually delightfully happy and and nothing is affecting him. And he's just able to, in, in full comfort and ease, able to say, oh God, I just want you. No, this, this is a man who is surrounded by despair and sorrow. Verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? This is a man, this is a weeping man. This is a man on his knees, crushed under the weight of his despair. Just, we are often snackers where we're grabbing bits of food throughout the day and eating, always eating something. This man says that just as often as he eats throughout the day, he's, he's weeping. His tears have basically been his snack throughout the day and the night. It's so frequent. This is not a man who is so spiritually entranced with God that he's unaffected by the pain of this life. He's a weeping man who wants God but feels the pain of life in this world. Can you relate to this? What it means to desire and long after God and yet feel the pain of of this life, disappointments, letdowns. This pain may come from others, hurts, words that are said to you, disappointments, people letting you down. It may, it may come internally through health challenges. It may come through financial struggles. The myriad of ways in which our souls can be brought down with grief and despair are many. But we, can all, we all land in the same place, a soul that's discouraged and downcast. But as he stands in the dark valley, he doesn't choose to mope around and look around in the darkness and say, whoa, poor is me. He doesn't 
dwell upon his downtrodden heart. He looks up to God. He knows that's where God is found. And, and I don't know if you've had this experience when you've been taking off in an airplane or landing, but where you, you're uh, in a cloudy area, or maybe you're landing in a cloudy area, and the difference between uh, several thousand feet up versus on the ground is significant. On the ground, it's gray, and, it's, and you can't see the sun at all. It's dark. And yet, as you take off, you break through that cloud layer, and it's just blazing sunshine right above. And so the psalmist is down there in the valley and it's cloudy and he can't see the light. He can't see the joy, but he knows it's up there. He knows God is, God is there and he wants to get there. And so he directs his gaze, his desire upon God alone. Instead of looking down, he looks up. And as he does this, he begins to counsel himself. And part of the way he counsels himself is remembering the landmarks of his past journey. He remembers, verse 4, that he used to go with the throng to the worship of God. He used to go with all the people to go worship the Lord. And he was so excited. It was they're pleasant memories for him. Now, in one sense, you could say, well, that's only adding to your sorrow because you're not there now. You're not a part of that now. But I believe the psalmist is using this to, as, a, as a way to help him remember the goodness of God and thank God for the experiences that he's had. We often tell our daughters who, uh, when a good thing ends, uh, there's many tears, uh, even though they've had been able to watch that show or hold on to that toy or eat that snack for a long time. And now we're just saying it's time to move on to something else. And yet they break out into great tears because this good thing is ending and I don't want to let go of this. And one of the things we're frequently counseling them is you can be thankful for the time that you've had with that good thing. Don't think about what you don't have. Think about and be grateful for what you already have been given and what you have had. And I believe that's what the psalmist is looking at here. He's remembering the good things and the good times that he's had. Obviously longing to get back to that. Desiring that and wanting that but being thankful for what he's had. But then he turns and begins to speak directly to himself. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's as if he has this kind of -of out-of-body experience, and he gets out and turns around and looks at himself and says, Listen, buddy, why are you so cast down? Why are you so despairing? Why are you so sad? Why are you in turmoil? It's like he, he lifts up his own chin and says, Come on, buddy, come on. You know, look up. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice he is willing to confront himself. He's willing to stop his emotions right where they're at. Too often we let our emotions continue to carry us. However we're feeling, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I don't care what you have to say because this is how I feel. And you don't really understand how I feel because this is how I feel. And this is where I'm going to stay. But the psalmist says, no, time out. Stop the game. We're not going to continue to go down that direction. I'm sorry, emotions, but that's not where we're going to go. And he begins to change course and change direction by speaking directly to himself. The question begins to think about 
cause and reason. And the command is to point the direction to God himself. And friends, this is important for us to do too. For us to be able to counsel ourselves, to speak directly to ourselves. To be able to identify where are we at? How did I get here? Why am I so sad? To pull back, why am I angry? Why am I feeling this way? And what is then the truth that I need to remember? What is it about God that I need to remember in the midst of this moment? We need to learn to put the brakes on. And not be controlled by our emotions, but be controlled by the Spirit. Because a fruit of the Spirit in us is that we will be self-controlled. Which is really Spirit-controlled. And controlled by His truth. And so I ask, ask you, do you confront yourself? Do you actually stop yourself and, and point your gaze back to the Lord? Do you ask yourself why you're feeling a certain way and try to decipher and untie the knots of your emotions? Psalmist grabs himself by the shoulders, slams himself up against the wall, looks him dead in the eye, and says, we got to change direction here. we got to hope in God. That is where joy is found. It's been said to not question in the dark what we knew in the light. And I think we can see this principle even here. The psalmist is here in darkness, in sadness, but he's reminding himself of what he knew to be certain when he was there in the light and everything was happy and hunky-dory. When things were going well, he knew that he could hope in God. So why now when I'm in darkness would I doubt that I can hope in God now? No, I can hope in him here too. So the first step to climbing out of this dark valley of a downcast spirit is all about direction. We must fix our desire on the Lord. The second step that we must take relates to authenticity. We must be honest with ourselves and with the Lord. We see this in verse 6 through verse 11. He says, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go, on, go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist here changes landscapes. Before he was in a drought, and now he's drowning. Now he's, he's in a, sto- a torrential storm. And as we know, our spirits can get low because we are dry and empty. We, but our spirits can also get low because we're burdened, and, and the pressure is coming down upon us. We're overloaded. We're drowning. 
And that's what the psalmist describes here. He describes the powerful water that comes upon him and that buries him. Verse 7 says that the deep calls the deep, but the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 6, he talks about the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar, this place in the northern uh, part of Israel where you have Mount Hermon, and that's where uh, the, the rains can come and, and, and just dump upon the hillsides, and the streams and the rivers fill immediately, and the waterfalls begin gushing, and you just get this picture of a, of a spring in which the rains are coming down torrentially, as we have experienced here in SoCal just this past winter and spring. Right? Some of those storms that swept through and just dumped a tremendous amount of water all at once. And it's in the roar of all that water that this man feels barraged. But what I want you to see in this stanza is his remarkable honesty. First, see his honesty to God about the state of his soul. Verse 6 begins, My soul is cast down within me. He states very clearly, this is where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling. I am downcast. I am sad. I am depressed. He's also very honest about the source of his pain, the source of his agony, which comes from these enemies who taunt him. Verse 9, end of verse 9, he says, Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He has no problem saying that it's these people who are taunting me and are questioning even where my God is at that is causing me so much anguish. It's as if he's got an arrow stuck in his leg that he's walking around with this shooting pain all of the time, he says, is the feeling of these adversaries taunting him. These are atheist adversaries, atheist enemies who are questioning his very trust in the Lord. But notice also he's very honest about his own questions before God, to God. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I don't know about you, but questions like that give me pause in the Psalms. I'm like, can you say that? Uh, He just like, like reject God right there. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very bold and sharp statement. But in the context of this psalm, I, I, I believe it's said with full, full of faith. He's not saying this out of unbelief. He's saying it out of belief, rock-solid belief. In fact, he says right there, I say to God, my rock, the one on whom I depend, the one on whom my whole life and my salvation rests, I say to him, Why have you forgotten me? There's an honesty in his questioning of God that is extremely sincere. He's not hiding from the fact that he feels, at this moment, forgotten by God. And friends, I think that's instructive for us. As we are looking to decipher where we are at and looking to to get back to that solid place of joy, we must be, be very honest with ourselves and before God. We must be able to express how we're truly feeling. And sometimes that means questions that are difficult. 
And I think what we can learn from the Psalms is that questions are not wrong as long as they are said in full faith and trust that the answer is coming from God. And whatever answer that is, it's going to be a good answer because His will is always right. Our questions can't be said in anger, can't be said in doubting. James says that if we doubt, we're like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. We must say it in confidence, knowing that God is our rock and that we can ask Him these kinds of questions. A father who wants to hear from his children. If we're going to journey ourselves back to joy, then we've got to come to grips with our own situation. We can't live in an illusionary land. Fantasy will not get us back to joy. We can't suddenly fill ourselves with, with trite, shallow uh, platitudes that will try to get us back to that place of happiness. We've got to come to grips with truly where our situation is. And too often we run to entertainment, we run to food, we run to all these other things to try to fill the gap and distract us. And it's doing the exact opposite of dealing with these deep, hard issues of looking internally and asking, why am I sad? Why am I downcast? And God, what do I do in this situation? Where are you? How can I find you? Because I'm thirsting for you. We've got to set those aside and do business with God and be honest with ourselves and with the Lord. But notice that he's not just honest about himself before God, but he's also honest to himself about the Lord. He's honest about the source of his trials. In verse 7, he says that these waterfalls and these waves are your waterfalls and your waves. These torrential floods are actually coming from the hand of the Lord, and he knows it. He knows that God is the one who controls the dam and can shut off the water or can open it up, who can bring these trials or withhold trials. And so he's reminded himself that these are the Lord's waterfalls, these are the Lord's waves. He also reminds himself about the character of God, about his love. Look in verse 8. He says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. He commands his steadfast love. God is commanding and giving direction to his love and directs it towards his people. He also reminds himself about the closeness of God. That God is not some distant king in a far-off land that has no concern for him in this dark valley. He reminds himself that God actually cares for him deeply and is with him very intimately. He says that by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In those intimate moments as he lays there on his bed, the song of God is there replaying in his mind and in his heart. And so I ask you, are you honest with yourself about who's in control of this universe? Do you remind yourself about the character of God, about the sovereignty of God, about his love for you, about his closeness to you? Because it's particularly in these dark moments that we need to be reminded of those very characteristics of God of his closeness to us, of his love for us. Again, you can feel the grit in this man's theology, right? 
He's not in an ivory tower, separated from life. He is in the midst of it, feeling trial upon trial. And yet he's clinging to God, his rock. As the, God's waves of difficulty continue to crash against him and chisel him into the man of God. And so he returns to that same refrain in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You can sense that he asks this question, comes back to this now with an increased sense of boldness. It's almost as if the first time he said it, he's on his knees and he barely can whisper out, whisper out the phrases. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? But here, as he continues to gird himself and remind himself of who God is and be honest, he's able to, kind of, to rise up upon his knees and ask it with a bit more fervor and a bit more strength in his voice and say, Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you it's in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation in my God. If he is my salvation, if he has saved my soul, then can I not trust him for anything else that comes in my life? If he has indeed saved my soul from the fires of hell, can I not trust him when these enemies taunt me? When the circumstances of life bring me down, can I not trust him in this dark valley? Because he has saved me from the darkest valley. And so he preaches to himself. He sets up the pulpit, tells himself to sit down, and gives him a sermon. Hope in God, self. Hope in him. Hope in the scriptures is not a wishful thinking. Well, I really hope. I hope. I hope. Like a child hopes for a certain present at Christmas. Hope in the scriptures is a confident expectation. We hope for the return of the Lord, meaning we know he's going to come and we can't wait. We're expecting it and it's confident it's going to happen. We can put, bet your bottom dollar on it. He's saying, listen, count on it. You can count on God. You can rest on him. You can bet your entire life on him. He will hold you fast. He will not let you go. Well, let's look at the last step of the journey back to joy. The third step of the journey is, relates to prayer. We need to ask God to work on our behalf. We need to ask God to work on our behalf. We see this in chapter 43, Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The scene changes yet again. From the drought to the drowning 
And now, it's as if he's, he's come out of the valley, he's slowly climbing the hill, he's coming up above the cloud layer, and the light is beginning to dawn. The sun is beginning to rise. He can see the light at the end of the tunnel. The psalmist knows that it's only God who can save him. Salvation is found only in him, and so he turns to him and asks God to vindicate him, to defend his case, to show him just in the midst of the accusations of unjust men, and ask for deliverance, freedom from this persecution. He can do this because it's in God that he takes refuge. This is the God that he can turn to. And so we see in verse 3 that he asks God to send out his light and his truth, to direct him, the, the truth of God, the truth, his word, and the illumination of that truth, his light, as he sheds light upon his truth. And may he lead him, the psalmist, to, back to God, specifically asks him to go back to his holy hill, to Jerusalem, the hill upon which the temple is sat upon. And it's there, as an Old Testament believer, that you go for the ultimate climax of worshiping God. Go to the altar of God, where he can sacrifice for his sins, and he can praise the God who has forgiven him. He wants to go to God. This desire that we saw at the beginning is now being closer to being realized. He is expectant, and he's asking God to lead him back to that place. It's as if he's now praying more confidently. He's gotten up off his knees and he's standing, he's beginning to walk. But again, don't think that he's separated from the concerns of life. He's still hurting. He's still questioning. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There's still tears upon his face. But he's got a deeper confidence in the Lord. And now he's asking God to direct his heart back to himself. And even though he longs for this place, the holy hill to the dwelling, what he's really longing for is a person. He's truly longing for God himself. He says, because when I get there, then I'm going to go to the altar of God. Who is this God? This God is my exceeding joy. My exceeding joy. Nothing exceeds it. It is the most excellent of joys is to be with the Lord. Friends, this is the kind of joy that is offered to each one of us. That God can be our exceeding joy as well. Our souls were made to take ultimate delight in the Lord, to drink deeply from Him, and yet we settle for substitutes thinking that we'll be satisfied, the thirst of our soul will be satisfied by other things. And yet we know from the scriptures, and we know from experience, that all of those things are broken holes in the ground. We stick our head in it to try to lap up some water, and then all we get is a mouthful of dirt. It's not an exceeding joy. In fact, it's a passing pleasure. And so we keep using devices, entertainment, money, power, sex, all these things to try to keep us going, to try to help us find happiness in this life. That is what a broken world, how a broken world tries to find joy. 
And yet God puts himself before us as our exceeding joy. If only we would direct our gaze to him, submit ourselves before him, and humble ourselves before him. He closes out these psalms with a refrain that he says more boldly and more confidently than he said the prior two times. He can say, why are you cast down, O my soul? You've got no reason to be cast down. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He ends on this note of confidence as he continues down this path going after the Lord. And friends, as we close, I want us to remember one who already did walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that was on our behalf. The one whose soul was deeply troubled and deeply sorrowful. Jesus, the Son of God, as he went to the cross, experienced these same realities that we read about in these Psalms. He was taunted by his enemies, his soul was downcast. He was mocked for his trust in his loving Father. But none of that caused him to turn his gaze from the only one that could be his refuge. His desire, the deep thirst of his heart, was for fellowship with his Father. And that is what anchored him through the, the whole ordeal of going through the garden and into the, onto the cross and suffering on our behalf. He was also honest with his father about where he was at and what he was feeling. He said, I, my soul is deeply troubled. He said, he prayed to his father, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very similar to the cry of this saint in this psalm of, God, why have you forgotten me? he ultimately committed himself into the hands of the Father. And friends, it is because of Jesus, the Son of God, who walked through this dark valley and this sorrowful place that we can have hope in our darkness. Because he conquered death. Because he took the greatest darkness for us. And so now our joy is secured for us. We can have joy in the midst of sorrow. We can have joy in the midst of darkness because God is with us. He commands his steadfast love by day and by night his song is with us. So I encourage you, rest in what Christ has done for you. Look to the cross and look to God, your exceeding joy. And may you be able to find a path out of sorrow and into joy. And may you help others who are in that same place. We indeed have a reason to smile and a reason to hope, no matter how we're feeling. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this encouragement from your word. It shows us how we can get out of those dark valleys of life. When we are depressed, when we are sad, when we don't know why we feel the way that we do. We merely need to look to you 
We need to be open and honest about where we're at. And we need to ask that you would act on our behalf. Lead us out of this darkness into your light. Father, may we be able to look with hope and with confidence because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you for the gospel tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.